thrilled to have Dr. Paul Nussbaum with us here today to talk a little bit about brain science and the implications of brain science and what we should understand about our brains, particularly in complex, divided, and stressful times. Paul, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for your time. Looking forward to diving into a conversation that I think will be enlightening for all. Let's get started by having you tell us just a little bit about yourself and the passion you have for the work you do. Well, thanks, Stacy, for having me. It was a pleasure meeting you and Tammy down in uh, Puerto Rico there, important conference. I got to learn a little bit about the important work you're doing. So I've always uh, been fascinated by the human brain and, and behavior, and I've always been fa uh, interested in, in health and health promotion. And I uh, put those ingredients together, Stacy, and trademarked a brain health lifestyle. Now, when I first came out a zillion years ago, I was supposedly an expert in uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and related. And I still uh, keep my hands in, in that area, but I really became passionate about taking what I've learned in sort of the academic ivory towers and, and, and neuroscience to the dinner tables for mothers and fathers to really teach about this miracle that sits between our ears, right? And how we can shape it for health across a lifespan, regardless of age. That brought me into different verticals, one of which is the education uh, sector, because think about it for a second. We're in our children, and sometimes even college-age children, if you will, and sometimes even 70-year-old children who are in lifelong learning, are involved in the learning process. What's being stimulated it ain't the elbow. It's the human brain. So that's uh, kind of what got me involved in trying to help teachers and students and parents and administrators understand the, you know, the power that they possess in shaping that brain. So I want to jump right in because as you know, our work intersects with yours, particularly around students, what's going on in the country today, and our release of an upcoming documentary called Defining Us, Children at the Crossroads of Change. And we are living in a time where many changes are going on. I believe these are transformative times. I believe we're in the disorder before the reorder, but we are in really critical times for the country and truly are at a crossroads of, you know, as Martin Luther King said, where will we go from here, chaos or community? And how we move through these times, when we speak of opening minds, opening hearts, being willing to see things differently, now let's talk a little bit about what kind of process goes on as we attempt to change and how difficult that is, depending on your age and depending on your background and, you know, how you've been culturalized. Yeah, and also there's no doubt, and part of the message I had in Puerto Rico, you know, reverberates with what you're providing there in your in your statement. You know, we, we went through, what, two years, we're still kind of going through what's, what's called COVID, the pandemic, that had enormous consequence from a policy perspective in terms of learning, in terms of education, in terms of psychosocial development, interpersonal relations, our mental health and wellness, even our cognitive function, if you will. And we really still don't understand the overall implications for what the policies have done overall. We're living in a, in a time where relative to when I was a little boy, things are highly politicized. So in any time 
things get politicized, it tends not to be good. And so, you know, there was a day, Stacey, when, you know, you and I could have a conversation, maybe different in terms of our opinions of certain policies. Today, it's not a difference of an opinion. It's Paul's a jerk or Paul's this or Paul's that, meaning me. And so there's a lot of hostility, even to the point where one of the recommendations, for example, I've made for people interested in health is to turn the TV off. You know, we're smart enough to figure some of these things out ourselves. We don't need to be sort of lobby to hate people or to think this way of certain people. You know, I come at it from a perspective of, look, we're, we're all the same. I mean, I'm looking at you. You got different hair than I do. We both wear glasses. You're a different gender than I am. We could all point out all the differences, but I don't see that at all. I just see two human beings, you know, trying to cope with life's struggles and trying to be the best that we can be. And I think if we can approach things that way, rather than so always so focused on differences, oftentimes, which are superficial, we're going to be much better off. Our brains are going to be much more positioned to be kind, forgiving, loving organisms that they want to be. I want to kind of take you there for just a minute and ask you to explain this with a little nuance. So I think what you're saying is, is that we all possess a same set of sort of universal needs, desires, universal values. But we do come to issues with a different lens. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. John DeVidio, who's an expert on bias out of Yale, is in the documentary. And he says, you know, when I grew up, I was told the best I could do was be colorblind. And he said, but what I did in my head was I made people that were black and brown white because I couldn't understand them and couldn't get my head around it if I didn't make them like me. And he says that's prejudice because black people and brown people have different experiences than white people. Now that is just when we talk about something like race, but I'd be curious as to your feedback on that. And I'd be curious as to you describing what really does go on when we have to you know, make adjustments that we've not made before and live in a more diverse society and a more complex society, what are the challenges that face us as individuals? There is definitely push and pressure for us to kind of focus in on how we perceive things. And sometimes people call that bias. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes I'm in conferences where people are preaching about bias and I don't even think the teacher recognizes his or her bias. Correct. You know, I'm very hesitant to jump into that, uh, to be quite honest with you. Look, we've always been diverse. Since the beginning of time, we've been diverse. I think the meaning we're putting on that now is much different. And I think sometimes there's a heavy headedness for us to agree to certain perceptions that we really don't have. When I first started studying aging, aging means, at least from the Western view, when you're 65 and over. Aging really, as I teach it, it begins in the womb. Okay. So what most people think of when you think of aging is you're thinking of grandma and grandpa. That's really aging in the latter lifespan. When I came out, we had an ageist perspective. That is, you know, if you're a certain age, you certainly can't do A, B, C, or D. Well, you know, the, the data just doesn't hold up to that. I could show you some 18-year-olds who can't do A, B, C, or D, okay? So, you know, that's all, those things have always been around. And I do think it's good to recognize that we're different, but for me, in my perspective, is we had to champion that. There's wonderful things about that. I talk, for example, about the male-female brain. I'm very open to say, look, I think that you probably heard me say down in Puerto Rico. Anybody that Googles me will hear me say this. As a male brain, I think the female brain is much more adaptive. 
<laughs> now that's not throwing an insult at all men. That's saying, hey guys, you know, I can learn a lot by listening to Stacy because her brain process is a little bit different than me. And so we've taken diversity and we've made it sort of into a judgmental thing when it need not be that. And again, I'm one that always tries to, from my own personal approach in life, not to pay attention to superficial things, but rather go to the fact that I believe we're all children of God, that we're all created by a higher being, that we all have weaknesses and strengths. And we're all trying each and every day to do the right thing. But when we're bombarded by a lot of talking heads and a lot of people that scream and yell that we need to do this, this or that, and sometimes it gets into an intimidating kind of thing. If you don't do this and I'm going to do this, this and that to you, it becomes difficult for us. And so we begin to develop, you know, some features perhaps that aren't really who we are. What I've tried to talk about, even from my own little background is, look, your brain has the ability to be kind. It has the ability to love. It has the ability to be forgiving. It has the ability to be compassionate. It has the ability to help individuals who don't have maybe what you have. That wipes all diversity out from the negative perspective when you view it that way. But we have to be conscious about it and we have to live our lives that way for each other. And we're definitely not there. I would agree with you. I, uh, there's definitely a force to kind of keep us divided because I think some people benefit from that. Let's start there because I agree with you and I love the way you're sort of getting down to the real sort of brass tacks and practical pieces of this and giving us a way to look at this in a very concrete way. So let's talk about behaviorally. If I'm an individual and I really do, I'm attempting to grow, I'm attempting to, to become the best person I can be. I want to engage in a positive way. Mm -hmm. It's easier said than done as you go through a day and you have certain habits and behaviors and attitudes and you're being hit with certain messages. And I do believe this affinity thing is critical because we always feel a little more comfortable when we're in an affinity group. And there's always a little bit of something unease, sure. if you will. Yes. What are some things that you would say to individuals who are trying to become more self-aware, who are hoping to move through this transition and come out on the other side at a, call it a higher consciousness, call it at a higher level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, whatever you want to call it. What are some practical things that you would say to people who are, and who are trying to teach their children how to navigate through this? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great point. And we've heard a lot about mindfulness. It's hard, but it's not rocket science. We have to be literally mindful and conscious of the way that we're behaving each and every moment. So for example, if I'm starting to feel like I'm processing some things being thrown at me and I'm starting to get a little bit anxious or upset, it's okay to say that out loud. It's a little bit atypical. We don't behave that way. We might storm out of a room or we might just say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Not that those are not adaptive behaviors, but the better way to go about it is to say, you know, this kind of conversation where it's going, I'm, I feel myself getting upset about, you know, and then I think taking another second and saying, here's why I think I'm maybe I'm getting upset about it. And when you start to talk that way, it feels a little weird. But the reason it feels a little weird is because we don't talk that way very often. So it's, it's from a neuroscientific perspective, the reason things feel uncomfortable to you, whatever it is, you don't have a lot of neural circuits underlying that behavior. So the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. And in particular, you know, lessons like that for your children can be powerful because they're going to model what you do and they see what you do. And they're going to, they're going to do that because you're their hero. And oftentimes parents know this, uh, even new parents are going to learn this fast that your kids are going to learn a lot from you, even when you don't think they're watching you. And so that kind of behavior, that kind of practice, like, you know, gosh, it would be great to have people from opposing sides on a news show 
with completely different opinions. The sun is hot, the sun is cold. Okay, now let's see you guys and gals work that out in a kind way. Not asking you to agree, just asking you to kind of work it out in a kind way. What does that look like? We know what violence looks like. We become really good about how to really yell at each other and insult each other and call each other names, stuff. At least I was taught, you were probably taught by mom and dad, grandpa and grandpa. You don't do that, but we've gotten away from that. That's become our default. So when it becomes a default, the way I explain it from a neuroscientific perspective, Stacy, it's kind of like if I come to you and hit your knee, your leg's going to come up. Okay. That's a reflex. It's hard to stop that. You probably can stop it when I hit your knee, but you're going to have to work consciously on stopping that. Well, our default right now is to kind of be insulting and personalize things, not feel good about ourselves or feel good about others. The only way we're going to stop that is to know, okay, my knee's being hit by this incoming insult. I don't want the leg to come up metaphorically, so I'm going to react a little bit differently. Final point with all this is just step back and take a deep breath and think for a second. In other words, our behavior is causing not only emotional distress and mental illness and angst and interpersonal difficulties, it's causing physical breakdown of the body. And over the long haul, if we don't change this, a lot of us are going to have some difficulties with our physiology. It's, it's kind of that serious. Well, that I think is a key point. And I love what you're talking about there, because what you're really describing is what we talk about as a constructive conversation. It's really about naming your emotion, but in a constructive way, not in a threatening way, right. and kind of sitting with that emotion and sitting with that discomfort for a minute and figuring out what you want to do about it and how you're going to respond to the person that's sitting across from you. Those are skills. Right? right. Those are skills that have to be learned. And there's a little bit of discomfort and pain that has to be tolerated in order to develop those skills. That's why publicly as a neuroscientist, I've been talking about the good things that each of us carry. And if we can kind of always come back to those as what we used to call as little kids as home base, we're safe, you know, playing tag or something. Home base was the safe place. Then, you know, all of us, believe it or not, are filled with love and are filled with kindness and are filled with compassion. And we have the ability to make other people better than they are. We have the ability to let others make us better than we are. We have that stuff within us. That's our home base. And if we could practice that each and every day, I ask people in the audience, everybody got a cell phone? Well, of course they have a cell phone, mm -hmm. right? Use your cell phone in a good way. I try every day to send out a positive message to somebody using my cell phone. Maybe it's one or two or three texts. Maybe it's just one. But particularly if it's somebody where there's a little bit of angst or tension, that's even going to be more powerful. And so there's these things that we can do to kind of get us back to home base to help us be true to ourselves. It's really, I think, about speaking your truth. And I love that. I think it is about being true to yourself. Love the concept of home base. These are all really great strategies. I think they're great strategies for children in particular. I'm going to take you to a, a little bit more complex situation. And again, really want to sort of stay in the lane of your thoughts around this with objectivity and what happens in the brain, because I'm curious as to whether or not you believe, you know, words create worlds. So we do think in the language of the words we have available to us. At least that's what my education is. I want to ask you first is if you agree with that, because I will often have educators and counselors, psychologists say to me, you know, if I'm dealing with a child, 
who is struggling or who does not have the words or who's not evolved in language to a certain place, often it's difficult for them to read nuance or at least express the nuance that's going right. on between two peoples in conversation. You know, you and I were talking before we even got on here today about the importance of nonverbals, right? You got to read those things. And that comes across in all kinds of ways. The eyes, the, the mouth, the facial features, the body moving. A person sitting upright can kind of indicate or a quick movement can kind of indicate a certain sort of internal feeling you got to pick up on. So that's incredibly important. And so that leads into a little bit to it's not just language, it's the messages of language that we form together to create meaning and perception, particularly when there's a lot of emotion being backing it. So no, you're absolutely right. So we live in a world, again, regardless of politics, regardless of opinions, regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong, where about half the states in the country right now are instructing educators to not discuss certain things. And I've been on many calls where teachers have been told you cannot use certain words, you cannot discuss certain issues, and it's a mandate. And so my question to you is, is if I'm a teacher in a classroom, can you give me some tips? Because regardless of what you think about what it should be, it is. This is happening inside our schools. And a lot of teachers are feeling really sort of shut down. They don't know what to do. They need to live within the confines of the district or the school that they're working in, are there ways, and I don't mean manipulative ways, do you have any insights or thoughts about how to, you know, how to deal with that situation? It's hard to divorce things like politicization and that. I mean, I know that's the way you, you, you set up the, mm -hmm. the premise, but it's really hard to do that because I think a lot of what you're describing comes from people that have political agendas. And we get in the medical field as well. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it comes down to if I'm a teacher, I mean, you have a certain role within the district, a certain voice within the district that says, you know, here's a curriculum, if you will, that I believe to be important. And here's a way that we can present it. Okay, whatever it may be. The problem is, and I don't know this for sure, because I'm not a teacher, right? But my guess is we're not getting to those level of conversations because we're getting so fired up about what should and shouldn't be talked about that it prevents sort of pretty good conversation, pretty good discussion amongst the experts who are the teachers. Now, it's my belief that any school district, you've got, you know, our talk in Puerto Rico, as you know, was to administrators. You've got supervisors, you've got teachers, you've got students, and you've got family members. And I, I was able to, to look at some data, hundreds of thousands of points of data, asking the same question to those different leaders, the teachers, students, and parents, and four different responses. All right, not, not right or wrong, but four different answers came from the same question. Okay, so what that tells me as a non-teacher, a person looking at data statistics, is you better have everybody in the room, okay, as we kind of go through these different issues. And I think that's the way, like with anything that you're going to do, that's the way you build team, right? Rather than making people feel like they're on the outside looking on the inside, you have everybody contribute. But any time that I would manage individuals, I wanted to hear from everybody. Doesn't mean you're always going to get your way, but you got to be able to feel like you have something to say, something to offer. And then work through the process as a person that, for example, if I was, you know, taking orders from a CEO, I would voice my opinion, but I would also make it clear that once the decision was made, I was going to follow the decision. And so that's sort of the way I think these things can kind of get worked out. But we're not getting to that point, in my opinion, because things are getting too heated one side or the other. And we're not we're talking emotionally at each other. 
and we're not talking logically at each other. We're not thinking through about the stuff that we learned in school as a teacher and about childhood development, how that may play in and about what families and parents think and about what the overall goals of the district are. So, I mean, I think those things are all getting missed in these conversations. What happens in the brain when I, at different levels of development, feel like I cannot speak my truth? Because you have just sat there, we've just talked about the importance of being true to who you are. So is there a reaction? Does it trigger an anger? Does it trigger an emotion? I mean, that's a simplistic way of asking the question, but I'm curious is if there is brain science that says when we can't speak that there's something that happens to us. You know, for example, you could take that to an extreme and say a person who has a stroke who can't speak, they get depressed. They get very mm -hmm. frustrated and angry. People that can speak have the ability to articulate, but won't, I think it becomes an issue of why don't you, okay? And so that's where you get into, there's probably fear. Mm -hmm. There's probably a lack of confidence. I've learned in the past that when I do this A, B, C, and D habit, okay? So it's better for me to be quiet. Or the person just has learned from lifetime of experience that they don't believe that what they have to say is valued. But, you know, all of that goes to being open to inviting everyone to have input. If I was leading a group, I would say, you know, I would use that example. Sometimes people will not speak up in a group like this because of A, B, C, and D. Is anybody feeling that right now? Because I want you to know you're safe and nobody here gonna talk down to you if you voice your opinion. I may not agree with you and I'll let you know that, but I wanna hear from you. I want to hear from you. You know, people are pretty smart. They know whether or not that's a genuine statement or not. You know, I, for one, probably wouldn't speak up a whole lot if I felt somebody was completely disingenuous. And they, but you can figure that out pretty quick. But a lot of times people are. You know, what I've encouraged people, Stacey, to do is I talk about things called novelty and complexity, which are really good for the brain. And as you were talking about earlier, novelty and complexity is going to put you in an uncomfortable spot by definition. But it's from that discomfort that we grow and ultimately we learn about ourselves. So again, being mindful of why I'm not speaking, you'll know the answer before I can figure it out for you. And don't be afraid to express it. I'm a little bit leery about talking right now because the last time I did this, I kind of felt like you jumped down my throat. I'm a little bit leery about talking right now because I feel like I'm the only one in the room who feels this way. And I don't know how good that's going to feel when I'm one of 15 people, you know, whatever it may be but the person's able to express. I can't tell you, I'm just having these, you know, things going through my head right now. I cannot tell you how important I think what you're talking about right now is in our society at this time, because what I wonder is because people on all sides of the issue don't have and haven't heard about, haven't learned about the skill sets that you're talking about, to have more complex conversations. I wonder in a diverse world, in a complex world, call it what you want. I wonder that because we don't have those things, it's why we're where we are. It's why we're running around saying, don't talk about this word. Don't talk about that. Do talk about that. You know, we need to be able to say whatever we're feeling without any kind of guardrails, filters, boundaries, thinking about what, how it's impacting another person. Or we just need to be completely silent and not talk about it. And that's not the case. It's really developing new strategies 
or at least learning new strategies to have constructive dialogue and conversation in a world that now demands it. And for teachers to be trained, you know, a third grader doesn't walk up and say, you know, I'm not self-aware today. Help me out. Right. Right. So (laughs) thoughts on that? Comments on that? I think you're absolutely right. And it's not just children, it's adults, right? I mean, the children aren't going to get this if we adults don't show some leadership and, and the ability to, to teach. I had a thing down in uh, Puerto Rico where I was trying to, and what I try to do with teachers and, and school districts is to say, you know, look, there's a thing I call, you can call whatever you want, I call it brain healthy schools. What does that look like? Well, yeah, we want to learn, make sure we're learning the core curriculum, no question about that. But there's other things because of what you're pointing out right now, Stacey, where I think that schools have a pretty good position to help. And I call them acts of kindness, A-OK. And so that's where we get into teaching. They call it emotional intelligence. Part of emotional intelligence is teaching children and adults how to relate to one another and how to speak to one another and to listen to one another and appreciate one another. The goal is not to agree. The goal is to listen and to be able to express oneself. And I think along those lines, if we teach people, which is what I try to do, but this should happen in the schools at the earliest of ages. Kids can get this. You say, look, you got this miracle that sits between your ears. You can't see it, but it's there. And it's it's really your identity. And you have this wonderful ability to shape it to be whatever you want to be. Go for the heights as much as you want to. But you got this emotional part of your brain. And you got this thing on top that tries to keep that emotion in check so that we don't hurt one another. But if that comes out too strong, we're going to, like you just said, leave people behind in a bad way. And so once we learn those basics, not everybody's got to be a neuroscientist, but you learn the basics of who you are from the brain out, you can begin to identify on a daily basis, hey, Paula, you just kind of let your emotional system get a hold of you there, didn't you? And it can almost become fun. Or you can talk out loud, you know, I'm going to really try to work on pushing through my emotional feelings right now. Bear with me because it ain't going to sound real good at first because I haven't done this. It's going to be harder for little boys and little girls. It's going to be harder for bigger boys and bigger girls. That's why the 18-year-old male brain doesn't say a whole lot. The female brain will say a lot more. Okay, But when we work together, we can literally get through these kinds of things. Kid has to take a math test. Let's take a few moments before the math test because your anxiety is up sky high. These kids, are anxiety is up sky high. When their anxiety is up sky high, their emotional systems are kicked in. They're not going to do as well on the test. Because all the stuff they learned, they learned, is going to get suffocated by their emotions. Okay, so we can go from B's to A's out in our schools out there just simply by having kind of five minutes of a quiet time or a deep breathing exercise or just letting people express how they're feeling right now. And then let's take the test. And so that's just some basic ways that the schools can become not only helping kids learn, but also helping us relate more mature ways uh, in in a civilized society, we hope. I want to thank you so much for being part of this today. I think it's some really enlightening new information that is so important for our country and for all of us individually. Where can people learn more from you? How do they get to you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now. Anything that you would suggest that they read or see? The best way, Stacey, is really to go to my website, if I may. It's www.brainhealth.com ctr.com. On that website, everybody, regardless of age or background, you can find a lot of free information. I really don't sell anything per se. I try to get 
folks to, to become better at who they are. And so there's a lot of videos, there's a lot of documents there, there's a lot of uh, fun things there that people can look at. I have a YouTube page that you can find there as well. And so I've been taking my message about brain health, teaching you about your brain and how you can shape it for health really across the world. I'm going to be taking it onto a cruise line in the near future to help people, you know, say, life's kind of tough right now for a lot of different reasons. I need to just take a time out, go learn about myself and become a bit more balanced. You might be a billionaire. I can guarantee you I've been with some billionaires or every bit as miserable as anybody like me who's not a billionaire, okay? It doesn't, money doesn't matter. All this stuff that's superficial doesn't matter. We're human. And all the things you and I have been talking about uh, are affecting all of us. And there's really not sort of a place we can go where we say, I need to just chill for a second, get back into balance. And so that's kind of what my message I try to do for folks. And I work on it every day myself. All right. And I take two steps forward and one back. But the important thing you and I've talked about is I'm mindful and I've gotten really good at saying I'm sorry. And I find humility to be very powerful medicine. And anytime I get out in front, I take a deep breath and say, Polly Wally, you did it again. You got to back up, take the back seat, calm down and just try to be humble and try to help each other, you know, just, just love a little bit more, be patient a little bit more, be compassionate a little bit more. We are so much more united than we know. We're just being told we're supposed to be divided. We're not. I know you, Stacy. I know enough to really care for you, but I know we're a lot more similar than we are different. And that's true. Even the people that would disagree with me hundred percent, I'd still want to sit down with them and learn about them and help them learn more about me. And if we can kind of approach life that way, we're going to be much better off. Well, I really appreciate you being here today. There will be podcast notes on the podcast for those people who are listening, please. I really encourage you. I, I heard you speak in Puerto Rico and loved the, loved the message and, and loved your work. And one of the reasons we, we connected down there. So I encourage everyone to go to your website and to do what they can in their, in their individual lives and in their professional lives to really start to learn how to have these more constructive conversations and build relationships across all channels. Thanks so much. It was great to speak with you today and we'll be in touch. 